to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzezemski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, and we're sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Of course, joined with Robert Hutton. Robert, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Been gaining a little weight since we've been in this French cafe. We need to get back to our uh, corner booth. nothing sugar-free in France. No, they don't, that's, there's no word for sugar-free in no, France. No, they don't do have you? one of those, because every time I ask, they stare at me like I'm an American, which I am, by the way. Um, so we're, we're joined again with our, our same guest we had uh, uh, previously, and that was um, Abbot Placid Solari. And thank you so much for joining us again. Abbot Solari is the abbot at Belmont Abbey in North Carolina. It's a Benedictine abbey. Uh, and we're so honored and blessed to have you here again with us. Thank you for having me back. Well, you were so popular before that, you know, uh, we thought we'd give you another chance to, uh, uh, to see if you can uh, even beat that last performance you did. Or redeem myself. Well, well we aren't going to say that. You, you did great. So we're going to talk about uh, what I know is another uh, love of yours, um, and it's a love of mine particularly, and that is just understanding what we mean when we say the church fathers. We hear that phrase every once in a while. Uh, and Those are my parish priests, aren't they, Dick? Yeah. Those are my church fathers. <laughs> that's no? right. They're fathers, and no. they're in the church. Yeah, that's right. What we're talking about, a lot of times we'll have the phrase early church fathers, oh. Robert. When we hear the early part of that. They have the 5 o'clock mass. In the <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's, that's not what we're talking about no. either, Abbott. No. Let's go further back. I think the term refers to Christian writers from about the end of the first century until probably about the 6th century or so, maybe a little bit into the 7th century. Like most periods or so, you can't get a, a very definite cutoff. And so most of them would have been men, hence the term fathers. But really it refers to their, their role both as spiritual fathers and as teachers, and therefore sort of bringing others to birth in the faith. Many, though not, not all of them, were bishops. And so they, that's, that's where the term father comes from. And it's all interesting. I, whenever I talk to some of my friends about the, uh, the early church fathers, they're a little more leery of, of these writings. And I, I, we have to make it clear that Catholics don't believe that this is sacred scripture. Right. That's why I said it begins sort of at the end of the first century, at the end of the apostolic age. Although these are the ones who would discern what was scripture. Because remember, the Lord didn't give us a Bible already printed. It was the life of the church itself, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost, which discerned which writings were, in fact, of apostolic origin and which were authoritative. So these were the Abbott, people are who did that. Are you trying to tell me that, that, that some guy wasn't walking along and he stopped by this little bookshop and there was this beautifully leather-bound, gold-gilded right. book with all these Already little tabs done. in it? Right. Read this. <laughs> I know. And so obviously there were, there were obviously years and years and years and years and years mm-hmm. of, uh, we can say, arguing, debate, discussion, uh, prayer, and uh, maybe hopefully a little silence and listen to God uh, speak at that point and to, to determine what books would be those that would be listed in the canon. Mm-hmm. We took the early church, of course, the time of Jesus and the apostles, took over the what we now call the Old Testament as the inspired scriptures, but there was no obviously New Testament. And so to discern ultimately what was going to be the authoritative word of God emerged during this period of what we call the church fathers, and that's one important reason why they are so significant. Who would they be, Abbott? Who would be the church fathers that helped us put together the Bible? 
Mm. Right. Well, the ones that, I don't know if you'd say the ones that just put together the Bible, mm. but people that we hear about, like St. Basil or St. Augustine, uh, the writer Origen, St. Jerome, who in fact was not a bishop, uh, St. Ambrose, um, Gregory of Nyssa, all these people, these names we hear, were living and acting during that time. And then you go back even further, names which are probably not known, Tatian or so, or Tertullian, um, who give us a whole treasure of reflecting on the message of the gospel in a sort of, you know, it's, it's a new period, a fresh, uh, fresh news. They also, I think, of value and where they're relevant to us today they had to take the gospel message, which was, of course, formed in a Semitic culture, and Jesus is speaking Aramaic, evidently. The scriptures, the, the, the gospels, New Testament writings in Greek, and they had to transform that message in a way that was authentic, that is, true to what the Lord had given, and translated into a culture that was completely different, the sort of Hellenistic, Greco-Roman culture of the Mediterranean world in the first centuries. That's another reason why they're important, uh, because we also have our early Christian writers who wouldn't fall under the rubric of fathers, um, but whose writings are important as they struggled with how to, to understand God's revelation in Jesus Christ and how to explain that accurately and then to understand what ramifications does that have for, for, for life. This is the period when the church's liturgy and the sacraments emerge, and, and again, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit given at, at Pentecost, and the writings on the, the, the sacraments, particularly the sacraments what we call of initiation, particularly baptism and, and the Eucharist, are beautiful, and can give us insights uh, afresh or anew so the, the fathers talk about the Eucharist. Uh, you see that back in the, the writings and sure, hundreds of years ago, because they were preparing adults at that time primarily for baptism. Um, well, do you know? Um, do we know why they wrote? Do we know uh, to whom they were writing? Because if you think about it, we, we refer to them as writings. Right, and now we they come to us now in these wonderful leather bound books, and we can we can uh, go through them all. And unlike anybody in their time could have ever done, um, most likely the library I have at home of the Church Fathers is is, is rather large, mm-hmm. and I doubt the average person had that number of books available to them. But we know they were writing. Who were they writing to? Were they because there weren't like magazines, well, right? They whole, didn't have blogs. How do you so. know, Deacon Jeff? <laughs> there's a whole variety of writing. Some, in fact, they were writing to one another. Their letters. Letters that, uh, again, in that time and place were written, we would call them almost private letters, but in fact they were intended for publication. They knew that they would be uh, copied and and diffused around. Some of them are homilies. Some of them are treatises or essays on certain topics. A lot of them are commentaries or explanations of the Scripture. So some of them are are uh, refutations of attacks on Christianity. So the whole variety of writings that the Church Fathers composed, many of them, for example, the homilies would, of course, been been spoken, but particularly as we get later in the period of the Church Fathers, there would have been someone taking notes while the, the bishop was preaching, and those would then be, be printed up or written out and, and, and diffused. It's kind of like what I do when you preach, Deacon Jeff. Exactly. I take notes and keep <laughs> them faithful. Well, and now the people who were, let's say they were um, um, taking notes and something was published, right? It was written. This letter was written. 
we, we see things we're used to in, in our modern age of just these instant replies. And, in fact, I think we, we sometimes as Catholics will get frustrated with how slow the church moves. But is some of it just due to the, you know, the idea that the mail takes a long time back then or these writings? Things took a lot more time to do? Well, some of them were diffused. Actually, we would probably be surprised how rapidly they were, particularly, don't forget, the Romans had a wonderful series of, of roads and, and transportation and communication Obviously, nothing like we have with the Internet or so, but for the time and place, fairly rapid. So ideas did move more rapidly than we might suppose. But you also have letters, for example, there's a famous exchange between St. Jerome and St. Augustine on arguing over something. And the letters cross in the mail, as it were. And you can, from our perspective now, can see that the, the replies or the writings, they hadn't re- received from one, the answers from one another. So that happened, too. But I think the the diffusion of Christian writings was probably, we would be surprised at how quickly they could get around. Now, I know that also some of the earlier church fathers, like St. Ignatius of Antioch writing from, from in the very, very early church, some of those writings were actually considered as part of sacred scripture, weren't they? But, but obviously, ultimately, did not make it into scripture. Various places. Remember, there was not one central sort of office, as it were, that, that decided these. So some of the things, such as Ignatius, or the Didache in particular, would be accepted in some places as inspired scripture. Some of the canonical books would perhaps not. Um, and it took a period of a, a couple of centuries until there was a sort of general consensus that, of what we have in the of the canonical books of the Bible was only defined for the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent. Well, yeah, formally in a, in mm-hmm. a, in a no... But used for centuries before that. Absolutely. I, I guess that someone would say that maybe our tradition had defined it after, because there were some smaller right. councils uh, as early in the, the early in the 5th century, mm-hmm. late 4th century, where mm-hmm. they came together, and those same books that are listed right. there are oh, those same books that we have today. That's why I said from the, it took about a couple centuries, but you're talking about 3rd century or so. The definition of the Council of Trent is simply recognizing what had already been done when I say it was defined at that time. Right, and also that was a time when the church needed some serious definition because there were obviously issues that were going on. Of particular books of the Old Testament. Exactly right. And now Robert mentioned that uh, there were several things that were covered in some of these um, uh, different letters that were written, and we know that there are... uh, Wonderful writings about uh, you know the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, even uh, uh, the the priesthood and uh, who a bishop is and, and what his responsibilities are. Um, as we look back at these writings, do they apply to us today? Are there things that we can glean from them today? Not only just to get an insight of the way it was. I mean, we're all like Civil War history buffs or something, and we love to see what happened in history. But aren't there some things back then that really apply to us today that we can, we can pull from those and benefit from? I think the value is, again, another value of the Church Fathers, is that we can see so many of the things which you just mentioned. The importance of the Bible, the Eucharist as Christ's presence, the importance of the sacraments, the ministry of bishops, of deacons and priests is present in the early days of the Church, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we can recognize the continuity of the church living and growing through the centuries, precisely in continuity with those earlier Christian writers of the period of the church fathers. There, sometimes I think, or at least maybe speaking for myself, we can, can oftentimes almost go through the sacraments, for example, by rote, and reading their commentaries or their 
their presentations to the catechumens as a freshness to it or a different aspect that perhaps we've forgotten that can be enlivening because we're celebrating the same sacraments. And one of the things I loved about reading some of the early church fathers' work is to realize that that the men that were writing this not only had a literal hand in helping the church come together with what was going to be in sacred scripture, but also, some of these men were, uh, were terribly persecuted. And so we're reading the, the writings of, of men that loved the church and women that loved the church so much that they would give their all for Money that Money to die for it. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty. They've got a whole collection of, of martyrdom literature. Some of it, uh, as it gets further removed from the source, gets to be almost fantastic legends and so forth. But some of the the earlier ones of St. Cyprian, for example, the African martyrs or St. Perpetua and Felicity are just beautiful in their deep attachment to to Jesus. They're dying for Jesus, for a person. It's not some abstract truth uh, or a cause. There's in the, the, uh, the martyrdom, the passion of Perpetua and Felicity. Felicity was Perpetua's slave, and she was pregnant at the time they were in prison and were going to be executed as Christians. But Roman law forbid a pregnant woman from being executed. They'd let her give birth, then execute her. That was nice. Of <laughs> That's that. very charitable. Very thoughtful. Yeah. And when Felicity goes into to, to labor and is crying out with labor pains, the, the, one of the guards says, you're crying out like this now, what are you going to do when the beasts are upon you? And she says, now it is I who am suffering, then it is another who will be suffering in me. It's a beautiful attachment to Jesus. Wow, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We're, we're, we're loving to hear about the Church Fathers, and we're going to hear more about the Church Fathers uh, right after this break. Before we do that, we'll remind everyone about our website, www.thecatholiccafe.com, and also would love for you to email me at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so we'll be right back. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. My heart is restless until it rests in you, O Lord. These famous words aptly describe the life journey of their author, one of the greatest philosophers and theologians of all time, St. Augustine of Hippo. Born in Africa in 354 A.D., St. Augustine's father, Patricius, was a well-to-do pagan Roman citizen and his mother, Monica, a Christian. Though Augustine was exposed by his mother to the Christian faith as a child, he strayed as a teenager, choosing to practice Manichaeanism, an early heresy pitting a good spiritual world of light against an evil material world of darkness. St. Augustine led a hedonistic life, having a lover and even fathering a child out of wedlock. In society, his reputation grew as a philosopher and teacher, but his mother Monica never gave up praying for the conversion of her son. After 20 years of patient persistence, Monica's prayers were finally answered. In 386, St. Augustine had a conversion experience after reading the life of St. Anthony of the Desert and spending time in discussion with St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan. The following year, both he and his son converted to Christianity and were baptized. St. Augustine is renowned for his beautiful lamentation to God. Late have I loved you, O infinite beauty, ever ancient, ever new. After becoming Christian, St. Augustine sold most of his patrimony and gave the money to the poor. 
he became a priest and in 395 was made Bishop of Hippo, a town in Africa. St. Augustine was a prolific writer with over 100 surviving works, writing commentaries on scripture, treatises against the heresies of the day, and authoring several books. Two of these, The Confessions and The City of God, are still widely read today. The Confessions is considered to be one of the first autobiographies ever written. St. Augustine was a preeminent philosopher, articulating a philosophy of God existing outside of time and space. He effectively argued that bishops and a hierarchical church are necessary for dispensing saving grace. His thoughts concerning the nature of evil as only a privation of good laid the groundwork for future theologians, such as St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Augustine died in 430 and was declared a saint by popular acclamation. Pope John XXII declared St. Augustine to be a doctor of the church. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this has been another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. We're here with Abbot Placid Solari. Abbot, we are obviously talking about the uh, the early church fathers. My personal experience with the church fathers, for me, it was uh, it was beautiful. I was born and raised a Catholic, but had fallen away, was not well formed, right? Didn't uh, and there was a lot of guys my age that had a little problem with uh, understanding what the church taught. Right, and so I start to read these uh, these early church writings, expecting to find some wonderful uh, uh, Protestant theology. And wow, much to my amazement, I couldn't find any. I mean, not even like just a little. I couldn't find any. Every every one of these church fathers was, was talking about confession of sins to a priest and uh, receiving Jesus um, truly uh, in body, blood, soul, and divinity in the, in the Eucharist. And I was amazed at the Catholicism of the early church fathers. And I think a lot of Catholics sort of don't realize just the, the weight and the power, right, of, of, of who they are and what they can mean to us today. Okay, well, talking about that, and Abbott, maybe you can help me. If I was going to pick one church father as a, a person that's not really been exposed to that, who, who would you, would, who is your favorite, or who do you think a lay person could go to to read that would really see in the early, in the early writings the Catholic, the Catholic faith. Well, one of the advantages I think we have today there there's an abundance of good, fairly recent English translations of the of the writings of the fathers that are that are making that make the fathers accessible. That's a hard question because you you might have a favorite for different reasons, but probably um, one you couldn't go wrong with is Saint Augustine. Or read the Confessions or so to start off with, or. His little handbook on faith, hope, and charity is a very small, readable thing, which would have exactly as Deacon has said, sort of an introduction to the faith. Um, what time would that be? Saint Augustine is going to be late fourth, early fifth century. So, uh, uh, five hundred A.D. Then, to, well, from about uh, three fifty something to four thirty. Oh wow! Um, read some of Origen's homily. I'm reading right now Origen's homily is on the Book of Exodus. And how he talks about the scriptures and how we have to penetrate into them and we have to have a, uh, be led out of spiritual Egypt into, into God's, God's own grace are just beautiful and refreshing. So it depends on what your, your, your interest would be. But St. Augustine you can't go wrong with. Uh, the the um, 
de Sacramentis of, of St. Ambrose, and you see all the, particularly at Easter time with the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, the explanation of the sacraments, or um, Cyril of Jerusalem, or so, any of these are, are just beautiful introductions or reintroductions for us to the sacraments. So some of the, bap- the baptismal or the catechetical homilies. Well, that was the most amazing thing to me to read. Uh, Cyril of Jerusalem particularly, but several people, even St. Ignatius of Antioch, when he, mm-hmm. when he refers to the church as the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and that's what was that, Deacon John? Well, that was about 100 and, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, 180 very, AD? No, very, no, that's even earlier than that. It's been the first 20 years or so, perhaps in the second century. That's exactly right. They were one, calling one, the church yeah. Catholic 20 years, I mean, like yeah, it was 120 or something. listed down here. It's like a, a 110 AD, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. The letter to the Smyrnaeans, mm-hmm. whoever they were, but they were obviously uh, needed to hear <laughs> They were in Smyrna. I, I, can read, I can read this little bit here. Uh, mm-hmm. Let no one do anything of concern to the church without the bishop. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which is celebrated by the bishop or by one whom he ordains. Wherever the bishop appears, let the people be there, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Wow. And so we hear the word Catholic used, and he, in, it's one of the first times, I think, where the word Catholic is used as a descriptor for church mm-hmm. to delineate mm-hmm. and say this is the ch- not just a, not a church that happens to be universal, but it's referring to it as the Catholic Church. Well, because it's... What Jesus wished to be there, the community that Jesus wished to continue his presence. And so where that's why the bishop is, the people should be where Jesus is, the Catholic Church would be. And because they're celebrating the, the Eucharist. Wrapped up in all that, we see talking about the Eucharist. We see talking about the bishop and the relationship mm-hmm. with the bishop. And that's a, a beautiful thing. Now, see, that's what's beautiful. That's what I picked up on immediately and started seeing those similarities. While they might be a little different looking those very distinct similarities between the early church and the church of today. 2,000 years uh, nearly, and the church is that same church. That's a church gathered around the bishop, following Jesus' command to do this to remember me. You know, Abbott, that shows, too, an authority. It's not really as much a model of everyone get together and vote on something. You have a person that is in charge in the bishop, mm-hmm. and the bishop is appointing leaders and the the I didn't. Would you read Dick and Jeff about how important it was to the, the, to listen to the bishop? Is that what Saint uh, Ignatius is saying in the first century? And well, and also just to respect the bishop as Christ, as and, an authority, right? As an authority, and wherever he is, that's where you're, that's where Jesus Christ is, because the Eucharist is there. Well, that's why again the, the Catholic Church will have its its bishops, its priests, and its deacons, because Jesus, out of the whole group of his disciples, chose certain ones to exercise a leadership role. And that, that continues in the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It comes into the bishops, priests, and the deacons. And Robert had also mentioned the teaching on the Eucharist. And we were just talking about Eucharist. And, and even that early, I, I remember listening to the radio uh, in, in, uh, in my hometown. We have a lot of uh, uh, Protestant radio stations uh, primarily. And, and I listen and, and I love listening to, you know, we're talking about Jesus. I love listening and talk about Jesus. And it makes me think about Jesus. So when I'm in the car, sometimes I'll, I'll turn on uh, Christian radio. And, you know, I, every once in a while, though, I'll hear something that I'll, in my mind, I'll go, well, that, I don't know if that's right or not. You know, it'll cause me to go and investigate and read. And mm-hmm. the church fathers are a good place for that. I remember one particular uh, uh, preacher who was talking about the fact that, well, the actual belief that the Catholics have that that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist really came around, you know, it was sometime in the Middle Ages, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and I started thinking, no, that can't be true. We didn't sort of just invent that. 
Right? And so I consulted the church fathers. And even, we were just talking about St. Ignatius of Antioch. He talks about, um, he uses a very strong word here. He says, heretics abstain from Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, those are strong words, but he mentions flesh. Right? And so he's saying Eucharist is flesh. It's the flesh of Christ. I mean, you can't. You can't just. We didn't just invent that whole. Uh, Jesus is present in the in the Eucharist, body, body blood, soul, and divinity. Uh, and Ignatius also writing to the Romans that real graphic letter on his own martyrdom also makes that parallel of his offering with the Eucharist as the flesh of Christ. That he's going to be the be ground as as wheat, so that he becomes that that whole connection between Eucharist as the body of Christ and the martyr is as also imitating the footsteps of Christ. And that's about, what, 100 A.D., 120 yeah, that's A.D.? That's about the 120 or so. That's beautiful. And there's and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, literally. Mm-hmm. And there's just there's so many more. And uh, eight centuries or so of, of, of that those beautiful writings that are uh, uh, very extant. I mean, there's just a lot, of, a lot of them out there. You'd be amazed. There's some wonderful people who are interested. There's some wonderful volumes that are available that will just sort of give you a cursory view of, mm-hmm. of what all the different church fathers have said and give you a nice sampling. And the Maybe if you like the writings of, particular, of a particular church father, you can go and find volumes on that particular mm-hmm. church father. Or Google it. That's right. You can Google pretty much, age. pretty much any of these uh, guys and no, you will I can, find. Like I said, there's so many good English translations now that have made them so much more, both English more readable and so many more have been translated. Now, I've also, Abbott, heard this uh, concept in, um, uh, of people saying praying with the church fathers. I mean, I know we read some of these things and we reflect upon them, but... Again, our Catholic theology and just uh, this whole idea of the communion of saints uh, and that the church fathers, while their, their earthly time has passed, they're still alive and well. And we can actually pray with them as they pray. And there's some beautiful liturgies that we can read and, and pray along with them, some beautiful prayers. And just some of their writings are going to bring to mind a prayerful feeling or a prayerful experience. That, you get so many commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, again, because of, of baptism that are just beautiful and can be refreshing for us also, uh, as that seems to me, maybe I'm just telling on myself, but it's so easy to fall into rote with saying the Lord's Prayer because we know it. And to stop and to what are we actually asking for? And you'll see in so many of the different writings um, an explanation all in harmony, but perhaps some little jewels of, of reflection for what we actually mean when we say these, these petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Well, Abbott, it's my fervent wish that everyone will have hopefully that same kind of experience I had with the early church fathers. And I know you would want to invite everyone to read. Here, go read. To read some more of the church fathers. And uh, so we thank you for just taking a little bit of time to illuminate uh, a little bit about the church fathers and hopefully open that door for some folks. Thank you very much for the invitation. Enjoy your, your meal here at the cafe. Very good. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. If you wouldn't mind offering a prayer for us. Let us pray. Almighty God, in your goodness you have through the ages provided teachers and holy men and women to guide us in fidelity to you. Help us to benefit from their teachings, from their prayers, and the example of their holy lives that we too one day may be numbered among your saints. And we ask this through our Savior, Christ your Son. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. 
There's always room for one more at our table. 